Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein, and for this week, I'm going to go solo for reasons that you will understand pretty soon. Now, back in 2006, a former North Carolina senator named John Edwards was gearing up to run for president. Along with Hillary Clinton and a first-term Illinois senator named Barack Obama, he was considered one of the main contenders for the Democratic nomination. And as part of the groundwork for his campaign, Edwards had some videos done for him that were pretty unusual for the time. Remember, it was 2006, YouTube was still brand new, and internet videos were not that major force in politics that they are today. And so the Edwards videos were a novelty. They showed the candidate in a variety of casual, off-the-cuff situations, like, for example, reclining on his campaign jet while lamenting the superficiality of politics. I'd rather be successful or unsuccessful based on who I really am, not based on some plastic Ken doll that you put up in front of audiences. That's not me, you know? The idea was to show the candidate in unguarded, authentic moments to give a flavor of what John was really like. And he was helped in his mission by interactions with his videographer, who joked with him from off screen. It's a great speech. <laughs> can you read it? Yes, I can read it. You can? Yes. Riel Hunter, the filmmaker whom Edwards had hired to produce the videos, shows up only in the first video. She interjects playfully from behind the camera. She jokes with John. You never actually see her face, but really, she makes it work. That's a great speech. <laughs> so glad you like it. I like it. Why don't you hear me give it live? So, it raised some eyebrows when, in the lead-up to Edwards launching his presidential bid, those videos were suddenly scrubbed from the internet. Rumors began to circulate that the reason for this was that he had had an affair with his videographer and the campaign wanted to scrub any evidence of their professional relationship. Now, at this point, the story gets a little personal for me, because in my early days at the Huffington Post, I was told that the reason why the videos had been removed was that John Edwards was having an affair with that videographer. And so began the process by which I became the first person to publicly speculate about the real Hunter-John Edwards relationship. No, I did not expose the affair. The National Enquirer is responsible for that. But back in the fall of 2007, I published a story raising questions as to why those videos had been scrubbed from the web. It wasn't my finest piece of work. In fact, I was quite petrified by it. 
this hadn't been the type of journalism I had envisioned doing when I entered the field. Selfishly, I thought I had tarred my career. And for a while, it felt like that was the case. Edwards denied the affair, and everyone except the National Enquirer ignored the story. Eventually, so did I. It would be many months before the truth did come out, when Edwards finally admitted that the affair had taken place, and it became known that they had had a child together. But by that point, he was no longer a presidential candidate. And although the story was major news, both he and Hunter gradually receded from public view. For years, I thought about that first story that I published, about what it meant for me and what it meant for Rial. I'd wanted to explain to her why it was that I'd written the story in the first place. Maybe, if I'm being honest, I just wanted to understand the full scope of what my piece had done. So I finally got up the courage to ask her to talk in the lead-up to this season, and she graciously agreed. But it wasn't just her story that she wanted to discuss. Instead, what we turned our attention to was what it was like to see a media firestorm build when you're squarely in the middle of it. This is Candidate Confessional. Can you hear me? You sound great. Wonderful. (laughs) Even after a call, like, I couldn't believe it was going to happen until it actually happened. Here we are. Well, how do we even begin? Um, so for the people who are going to be tuning into this podcast when it does air, I think it's um, what they should know is that you and I, Riel, have, like, a history. But And I don't want to get to that off the bat. What I want to know um, from you, uh, first and foremost, is, like, what you were what your life was like before you became this media fascination who were you what what did you do what were your passions what were your interests uh tell us a little bit about yourself before you became oh a God. fixture of the political world well it, it's it's i didn't <laughs> how do you go that far back i i don't spend a lot of time dwelling in the past <laughs> and it seems so long ago. Do you know what's interesting, Sam? I re- in order to speak with you, I reread my book, the first edition of uh-huh. my book. Um, and I can tell you that I was blown away by how I am a completely different person than the person who wrote the book. Well, in what ways were you different, do you think? Oh, I was trusting I was carefree. I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't at war with anyone. It was. It. I lived in a different reality. Had you ever like been politically active, for instance? Um, no. Were you? No. No. So not very. You know, not not interested in politics. No. But then you sort of. I mean, you, you fell in love with John Edwards, and you got kind of sucked into this world. Um, you weren't obviously, you know, a political operative, but you became a part of a political campaign in a way. And this is the work you were doing was videography for the for the Edwards Committee at the time, and you were trying to like, and you produced these web videos, and it was a lot of work, a lot of travel, just trying to make sure that the listener understands this. Um, and so it was that part was really great. So it was, you know, creative, creatively fulfilling at the same time. As misbehaving. <laughs> <laughs> that is one way to describe it. And I assume th- in the back of your mind, your assumption was that this will never become public, that we'll just you know, go about and do our thing and no one will ever know. I didn't um, 
Seems very premeditated, and when I was way too in love to be thinking about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair point. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't so, thinking beyond today. You know, was how am I? You know, what's going on today? Uh, that's fascinating. All right, so now I'm going to get uh, egocentric here, uh, and 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 people people will understand this question. Why I'm asking this question a little bit, but like, when was the first time you heard my name? Mm. I'm so sorry to disappoint you, Sam, but I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the backstory, just so people know, is I think it was what the fall of 2007. Um, I wrote a story um, that. I believe mentioned you and the videos disappearing from the internet. Uh, and I think it was Wait, the first time. You believe it mentioned me? <laughs> it definitely mentioned you. It was the first time I think that it had been suggested that something was untoward. And, um, and I, I guess I have to become the subject of the interview now for a second because, and this is what brings us together, which is at the time I was a reporter at the Huffington Post for three months. Um, I was petrified petrified of writing this story uh, and uh, it had been assigned to me by my editors and we wrote it without a firm conclusion about what and was happening wait 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 Sam Go I ahead. have a couple questions so sure. you, why were you petrified good question so I was petrified because um, when I had started at the Huffington Post it was my first real journalism gig uh, I had done internships before but I, I had this notion of journalism that I would do that was like lofty and aspirational and issue oriented and policy driven and I would you know big picture and my first big piece was going to be an open-ended story about web videos that had been taken offline and disappeared that left the suggestion that the person who created those videos you uh, may have been having an affair with the subject of the videos John Edwards and it felt like I was selling out it also felt in a way like who cares like this doesn't really matter in the end because it has nothing to do with you know what john edwards would mean for this country and like is it fair to drag this person into this whole saga and so when i put up the story all my fears were confirmed um the amount of hate mail i got was insane uh there was a poll put up on i believe daily coast that said uh, 84% of respondents believed I was a hack. 16% thought it was responsible journalism. Uh, and I went into a bit of depression. I thought like, wow, I've like set a reputation for myself that is, you know, poor and I'll never recover from. And, you know, all for what? For a piece that I couldn't even confirm. Um, now, I had no idea what you were thinking on the other side. I could imagine uh, probably much worse than I was. So your, in, your intention – can I ask you a question? So your intention yeah. when you first wrote it was to point to or bring up the fact or the assumption or the the question, was he having yes. an affair? With the, so we had been, we had been chasing uh, a rumor at that time that an affair was happening. And we had it fairly well sourced. I mean, it wasn't a hundred percent, and we had hit a roadblock. Like we couldn't obviously confirm it. Uh, it would be a year or so till it was confirmed. And so we had a question. We had a the the question we faced was: Do we just kill it and not say anything, or do we put up what we have and do we write a piece 
that uh, recounts the set of the steps that we took uh, from a reporting standpoint to get to that roadblock. And there was an internal debate about what to do. And we obviously decided to do a very sort of introspective piece about our own reporting. And it left an open-ended question that probably, uh, in retrospect, was... I don't know if I would do it again, honestly. It's tough. Um, it's a tough question. It still haunts me to this day whether it was the right thing to do journalistically. It's so interesting because I reread the Oh, piece. God. It's terrible. Don't. don't but what's don't. so fascinating to me, Sam, is that you – this happens all the time in life and especially in the media when the thing that you're accusing someone of you're actually doing yourself and so i found it so what do you mean by that i found it so fascinating the way that you wrote that piece is as if you were so you know the innocent one assigned in look at these webisodes you were doing a piece about the webisodes never never disclosing that you know we have these rumors <laughs> yeah. so you were you were covering yourself as you're accusing the campaign of covering themselves oh yeah oh yeah totally and there there was no shortage of hypocrisy on my point now yeah no to, so that's to, always so fascinating to me yeah i would say to my to my credit in that case like the campaign i thought deserved or had an obligation to be more forthcoming um and they probably should have been more forthcoming um whereas you know my job is not to necessarily you know be you know an open book about my own motivations my job is to report what i can find but i don't i don't discount your point you absolutely have a point and that's part of the reason why the piece actually like really plagued me which is i felt really like i had done something almost wrong journalistically um well and and that, that, that brings up another point though because i think that shame because those are feelings of shame <laughs> that <laughs> i and which i have no it's like i think the whole thing about the being at war with the media is shame based because the media is always at this rush to uncover what's hidden yeah, uh, you know, and to be the first one, and the flip of that coin is the involuntary exposure of something that you don't want exposed, and that's shame based. And so I find that to be extremely fascinating um, yeah. to be the root of what's going on with you know the battle. Well, let me ask you then, because at that point in time, um, you know, there was as soon as my piece came out, like. Uh, the you know they circled the wagons. Nothing was going on. This was irresponsible. How dare the Huffington Post uh, put this out in print? And and that sort of definitely caused me shame, as you know. Um, but I'm wondering, from your perspective, like, did you think it was being handled well by the campaign? And and what were you thinking? Like, what would, what did you want to do at that moment? I didn't want to be exposed because yeah. I was pregnant, and right. I. I was more concerned about the safety of my daughter and what was going to happen with that. I had no desire to be anywhere near the media or or anywhere near anyone for that matter. I wanted to be in peace and harmony because I was bringing a life into the world. And I'm assuming the circus started instantaneously after that, people coming to your house asking for comment and so that on. That so afternoon, forth. the National Enquirer was knocking at the door. 
at four o'clock that afternoon. Wow. Which started my run and uh, my trauma because I didn't want to be exposed and I was terrified yeah. of being exposed, which was which was not good. For so my that brings daughter. me to the point that brings me to the point of this podcast. So this is a podcast mostly about uh, people in politics who experience defeat or loss. And the reason I wanted to have you on is because there's a there's an underbelly to that, which is, you know, the you can be a non-candidate and you could suffer defeat and loss. Uh, and in one instance, in your instance, what I mean by that is that you could be sort of chewed up and spit out by the political entertainment media complex. Uh, and you can end up for the worse or you can end up for the better. Um, so tell me a little bit about what life is like when you have reporters hanging out on your front lawn, the National Enquirer banging at your door, and everyone essentially chasing you, your family, your friends for parcels of information that could confirm a rumor that would upend an entire campaign. It, well, it feels like harassment. <laughs> I mean, when people let camp out on your lawn and they won't leave you alone and they they won't go away, it's like bullying. It's harassment. It doesn't feel good. No one respects your boundaries. It it doesn't feel good. And I didn't want to talk. If I wanted to talk, I would have you know been front and center talking. What was the worst thing that happened in terms of the way reporters or media outlets treated you? What? <laughs> it's a long list, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of time here, so let's go through it. <sighs> the bullying that goes on. The coming to your house is, is a, a, a violation, a complete violation, and being and camping out. But then being so sweet and nice and spinning it and shaming you, framing everything as though you're a complete idiot and they're so smart and brilliant. What precautions did you have to take to avoid the media? Well, I didn't take enough. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's still, Sam, I kid you not, someone knocked on my door yesterday and my heart started racing. Really? Yeah. I, I still, well, a week or two, two weeks ago, a tabloid reporter knocked on my door, which started, I really thought I was over all of the trauma. Apparently Damn. I'm not. Did you ever, like, you know, think about just coming out with it and saying, I, I can't handle this anymore and I just want to, like, tell my story and then move on? In hindsight, I think that I should have done a lot of things differently. I was more the I was the most concerned about my daughter. Yes. So first and foremost, what was best for her, and I really did not want her father to be upset about anything. So I wanted to keep the peace, so they would have a relate have a shot of having a relationship. So the 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 media was was pressure. On me, constant pressure. I think I, if I had I done everything differently, yeah, a lot of things would have been different. No, yeah, and it's not the point of this is not to rehash that. I'm sort of more yeah. interested in what it's like to be, uh, as they say, in the barrel and and trying to like work through your different options in that moment. But you're right. Like the first it's person out fun, with the narrative. Sam, no, I, 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 I don't fun. deny that. <laughs> I don't deny that. Believe and you, me, you don't want to be. It's my, your, yeah. your side's a lot more enjoyable. Being the, I probably, probably so, being the <laughs> one chasing as opposed to the one being hunted. 
Yeah. And you were hunted for a while. It wasn't like the, you know, weeks after um, my story wrote uh, that everything came out. What ended up happening, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the National Enquirer uh, published a story about a week after my first piece. Um, and I think that was the most uh, – for the first actually direct – uh, allegation of an affair and then they kind of stayed on it but everyone else sort of didn't and then it was only in the summer so almost a year after uh, or nine months after my first story that ABC uh, News broke the story. Yeah and the National Enquirer uh, apparently ended up stalking me via satellite. No. They never, they, yeah they never gave up on that. Well they're relentless we'll give them that. Um, yeah they were relentless and they had the resources to be relentless. Yes. Did you um, – before I get to how it felt when it finally broke, I'm just curious. Did you begin to um, distrust people around you as the inquirer and others kept inquiring? Um, did you – did your circle of friends and family become tighter? We, I stopped talking about anything except with my attorney and it changed me in the way I was so open before, you know, just like if you go to the grocery store and you're talking to the checkout clerk, I mean, it, yeah. it's it it altered me, and I would like to change that. I would like to learn how to communicate without fear. Well, that's why this this podcast is the first step. <laughs> we're going to bring you back, Real. Um, so when it when it when the story does break, um, what percentage of you is? finally relieved and what percentage you was just purely panicked mm. that was a it was I was not relieved because it was only a half truth and I was thrown under the bus I mean it was a, there were many 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 problems with the way it came out the story the one the that story, John Edwards it, told yeah, yeah the, because it wasn't accurate so I wasn't freed <laughs> the truth did not set me free because it wasn't the truth. Fair enough. It complicated things even further. Which gets to your point about how you want to be the first one to tell the story. Correct. And so what did you do afterwards? I mean, when when you see something like that, that completely, uh, in your estimation, distorts reality, and it just adds another element, another chapter to what is, you know, already a very distorted book... But my and the media, but the media distorted a lot too, and I would, I, it would, it was infuriating to me. Yeah, you mentioned. I mean, you, it's dark. You said you feel like you want to die. Did you ever? I mean, I, I don't even know if I should ask this, but did you ever like have thoughts about hurting yourself, or is that just? Oh a, no no a no no! no. I love okay. life. No no, okay, I, <laughs> I love life. I was saying to my daughter the other day, there was, there was a bad day. I said a bad day is better than no day. You know, I absolutely am a huge survivor, and I have a huge love of life. Sure. And curiosity. I, I love, even though they're challenging times, I take whatever comes to learn and grow and change what's inside of me that created the circumstances. Just to back up, and then I'm going to leave the uh, actual story to talk more about uh, politics and media with you. But just to back up, I'm wondering if you could take me into in specifics like that moment where uh, the John Edwards sat down for the ABC uh, interview. For months, he said the story was completely untrue, ridiculous, and false. Uh, in which he misrepresented a lot of the story. Uh, I know that it's not possible that this child could be mine because 
of the timing of events. So I know it's not possible. Happy to take a paternity test and would love to see it happen. Where were you? How did you watch it? I was in St. Croix. I had to, Quinn and I had taken, my daughter Quinn, and I had taken a private plane to St. Croix, um, maybe to move there or live there. I, I wanted away. I wanted away from all of it. The media circus, the being, I was really being hunted at that point by yeah. everybody. And, um, I was in St. Croix. It was late at night. I was in a ha- hotel and Quinn had just fallen. She, you know, she's a tiny baby. She's a few months old or February, you know, I don't, to August, six months old, less than six months. And um, I watched it on the phone with my lawyer. And the bed, I remember the bed was like the mattress had, you would sink down in the middle of it. So it was like we were sinking down in the middle of this mattress. She Literally and figuratively. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's a perfect reflection of my circumstances. <laughs> and it were was just you, the two of just, us. And I was on the phone what, with my lawyer. And what were you thinking? There aren't, it was, it's beyond surreal. <laughs> uh, it, it is when you. I can't describe it because it's otherworldly. Yeah, I remember the first time it hit me, and, and I, it, this was in my book, so I remembered it. But um, it was uh, John was at a debate, and Hillary Clinton had uh, was talking to him about how she didn't have anything to do with the Riel Hunter story and he was telling me this and I was I couldn't get over the fact that Hillary Clinton knew my name. It's like <laughs> what? Like I, like it really stopped me. Like I couldn't what, what my world had collided. So it's uh, it's unusual when you are, you know, walking through an airport and everyone recognizes you. Or and then then yeah. you become paranoid. I mean and then People, even after the fact, like, how do I know you? I know I know you. Uh, you know, it's it's. Does it's that happen? Odd, yeah, it still happens. It's weird. Um, wow, I can't imagine to go from. So it's just back to your to that. your question. It's just it was a surreal experience. Yeah. So what did you? I mean, obviously, your opinions of the media are not necessarily the highest opinions, and I can understand why. Um, but what did you learn about? the media and political media and and, and specifically through the process? I don't understand why you do what you do. (laughs) And I would, I would like to understand it. I really would. I don't understand your perspectives because it's, and I, sometimes I don't either. <laughs> I don't understand the agendas. Well, I do, like why the the moral authority thing. You know, it's like yeah. I I don't get it. Like who uh, me, makes you guys a, the moral authority? Like I don't understand. Like let me take a stab at your mean, which is that a number of people in my world probably are, um, you know, have committed adultery, cheated on their spouses, uh, and then write with incredulity about your story. Yes. Or sit there and interview <laughs> me. You know, they can interview me and the, and they're like, oh, don't be, you know, we understand, we feel, we feel for you, we've all done it. And the minute the cameras go on, they attack me. 
Like, no one says that on camera. And then they attack me as though they didn't just say that five minutes ago. <laughs> Do you think that part of it, uh, this is not about you, uh, but part of it, um, I'm, trying to, uh, I'm trying to explain how I would rationalize this, which is um, they're not, <clears throat> people in my profession aren't candidates for office, right? We're not presenting ourselves as family men. Um, you know, and, and in case of John Edwards, you know, his wife was dying of cancer. You know, but there was I an wasn't. I wasn't. Yes. I was single. I wasn't married. And you know, it's granted. I it, he was he was, and I would yes. I shouldn't have done that. But really, it has to be all my fault. Did you feel like people made it your fault? See, I, I never I never actually thought of it that way. Maybe I'm different than people, but I I actually I mean. You obviously had some fault, right? But like, I thought that the onus was on him. Like, he was the one who was presenting himself that way. He was the one who uh, presented his marriage in that way. He was the one who was telling voters to vote on him because of a certain perception that they had. And you know, yeah, but I think the a, the a great majority of the media, it's a, a double standard. You know, as a woman, I should have. You know, I I you should have stayed away. Yeah. I shouldn't. Do have. you think? Yeah, I'm responsible. I'm very. I'm so powerful. I've I've really <laughs> been accused of almost bringing down the Democratic Party. You know that I'm so powerful. I'm really there's some from women. Women, women are ruthless to each other. I was just going to say there is something about the women on women element of this um, that you know, and I think they saw this in the Lewinsky saga too. Um, where women almost instinctively defended Bill Clinton at the time um, and attacked Monica. And it was just like, in retrospect, it seemed really antiquated. And I think we sort of reconsidered that type of coverage and our our perceptions of Bill Clinton too. Um, and But my, 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 my point in asking this was not necessarily to get into the, the gender elements of this, but to sort of get into the cannibalism of the media. I mean, when there's a story... They just want to consume it like that. And did you did you have any inkling that it was going to be like that? Do you think? I mean, what do, as someone who was the the meal, you know, you were the meal. Um, what was it? No, like? it was, and I think it was just a perfect storm. Yeah, you know, it's it just had all the elements. It was too good. It was just too yeah. good to not jump at. But do, don't you think that says something about political press? Like you know. We got – by the time it happened, he wasn't even – by the time it was revealed, he wasn't even a candidate and yet we were still obsessed with it. Well, it had all the elements. That's why it's more interesting. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's more interesting than healthcare, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever the, the, the latest Speak for yourself, Rial. I love healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> You know, whatever your your war is, your current daily war that you're having with the other yeah. with the other side, um, or with our current president, who is sure. you know the other side. It's you know, <laughs> sex is more interesting. Sex it and is. betrayal is is juicier. So, do you um since since this all happened, um, how long did it take for? I and mean, life will never be normal again. Obviously, you still have people coming to your yard and recognizing you in airports but like how long did well, it take I, you to it, at least it, get towards what, go ahead no no i'm just curious how long the recovery mm-hmm. process has taken the, and what's been like sam 
I've never been normal, so I can't imagine I'm <laughs> ever going to have a normal life. Normal is, you know, relative. I, sure, fair enough. Um, so, and and I'm creative, and I so I have a show I'm working on, a documentary right now. So, I'm hoping to heal my relationship with the media because. I would like my show to be successful. <laughs> You're going to become one of us. It's de- it's bound to happen. You might as well just enter I, journalism. I don't know about becoming one of you, but I would like to be friends. <laughs> I'd like to have a working relationship <laughs> that's based um, in, in, in trust and, and honesty and integrity. Do you think that's possible? No. Get out. <laughs> So have you have you like watched any stories since your own story and been like, ooh, I recognize that or ooh, like that reminds me of, you know, what I went through or God, I wish they could have read my book and taken my advice. Um, I watched you go after our president every single day and it I really it's amazing that I end up taking his side a lot of the time because it's you say you you mean me specifically or the media at large the media at large okay okay uh, thank you I didn't know if you were directing but while this he directly while he was running uh, you know everyone thought he was a big joke yeah and I didn't think he was a big joke from the get-go so you 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 felt empathetic I feel em- I feel empathy for him every single day. I mean, I'll go on. Being at, Explain being this. Being at war with the media is – he's just one guy. It's the entire pack against him. And he he has valid points. He really does. Did you vote for and Donald Trump? I did not. But I really, yeah. really like him and I'm in awe of his tenacity and his ability to function – while everyone is attacking him, I don't, don't you think he kind of likes it? I don't see how he does it. What I think he, I think he likes it. That's the difference. I think he, he, he oh, I he, do, he and loves that, being that, at the center of it. I agree with you one hundred percent. I was pushing back against it, which hurts yeah. when you you know fighting it, and you've got to come to terms with it somehow. And he really does. He's a master at getting attention. Uh, oh, yeah. And and flipping it and using it to his advantage. No, he really is, and he he speaks that. I mean, his accusations of saying fake news, which I understand what he's saying, but and he says it in a way that's polarizing and attention grabbing, which will, ends up serving him. Which is, but he does have a point. Yeah, no, he he um he he definitely is at the center of the firestorm. The the difference, I would argue is that um, he builds the firestorm. Whereas you built it but kind of like didn't want to build it, he actively goes out and says, you know what, cover me. Throw your grenades at me. You know, bring it on. And then he turns it into his own political advantage. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it really is the master at it. I mean, he really he is. is. Yeah, he is. No, I, I don't I don't disagree. Beyond Donald Trump, is there – I'm curious. Did you feel empathy for Hillary Clinton? I am also um, in awe of her, yes, and feel great empathy for her. 
um, and it's interesting because I never felt that she, you know, the email thing and the things that happened in the last few weeks or 10 days or whatever it was with the FBI and the emails and really buried her. And it, and I think it has to do with, um, I've looked at this a lot, and I think it has to do with our own feelings. Like when we have our own issues with what the media is reporting, it sticks to us. So like John, if you remember, had that $400 haircut that, oh, almost, remember, buried, yeah. that he almost buried him because he, the part of him agreed with what the media was saying. So I think that if you have some sort of contradicting internal conflict going on, it it uh, sinks you. Is it like so? Yeah. What you're so the media coming at you, it'll stick to you and it buries you and it causes you depression and you can't get past it because you agree with some of it. But if you're like Donald Trump and you can, he lives in his own reality and he sticks to his reality and he manifests that reality. He gets it done because he doesn't let anything stick to him. Or he's, he's better at it than the, yeah, he's better at it than the rest of us. He just yeah. really is able to shield your thoughts and feelings or whatever, you know, other than what everyone else is saying um, and stick to his own agenda. I totally agree with that. He's Teflon and he and he doesn't let it bother him and he doesn't care if, you know, you think like he's contradicted himself or if he's stepped in it. He just moves on. Well, we do that. Um, we contradict ourselves all the time. It's human. Yeah, of course. It, I mean, it, it, it's my, my point is that <laughs> and my we change point is that our most opinions pol- all the time. So why my is point that is wrong? This, it's very it's human. Not. My point is this, which is that most people uh, instinctively would be like, I didn't contradict myself or, you know, that $400 haircut is justifiable for this reason or, you know, so on and so forth. And I feel like Donald Trump would be like, yeah, I fucking got a $400 haircut. I'm rich. You know, it's like – and he would well, be he should. about it. And actually it was yeah. $1,400. So there. And everybody should be able to afford a fourteen hundred dollar <laughs> yeah. haircut, and I'm going to help you make that happen. <laughs> he would that go would on and we, on. That would be how we would do it. Yes, and people be like, "Yeah, I want a fourteen hundred dollar haircut too." Hell yeah, <laughs> Trump's right. Yeah, um, he's great so at it. All right, I have two last questions for you, and then I'll let you ask me questions as you've been doing throughout this podcast, turning it on me, which shows that you will become a journalist at one point in your life. It's just a matter of time. Um, my first question it's, is this. Isn't it um, much more interesting, though, to have a conversation as opposed to just the way I see the world? I mean, I really think that that's part of the issue with the media. They don't allow everyone's perspectives. Well, that's why I made this podcast. So here's my, here's my two-part question. Back to the, the Monica uh, Lewinsky uh, uh, story. When that was happening, um, I'm sort of curious um, – what your perception of it was at the time. The, my perception of Monica Lewinsky? Yeah, when that whole thing was happening with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, or pick any other political affair that happened. You know, obviously, you know, you, you, you're, you followed politics, even if not closely. And I'm wondering, like, as, you know, past political affairs were happening, like Monica or the Gary Hart instance or whatever affair you want to talk about, um, you, you certainly must have like had a perception of it or uh, consumed that news in a way and never thought that you would be in that position. I'm not saying it's a direct parallel, but you probably never thought you'd be like, oh, I'm going to be in that position one day in my life. Um, and when you were, did you look back at like Monica, for instance, or anyone else and say, wow, I, 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 
I have a totally different, you know, understanding of what she went through. No, I never really compared myself to anyone. I had a great amount of empathy um, for Monica because she was so young and the whole government invading. And I mean, when the government's involved, it's a whole different deal. It's not just the media, it's the government. And that, I mean, I, my heart just bleeds for her. Yeah, she, that's at that young age. It's that talk about a firestorm. Yeah, she was, people don't realize how young she was. I mean, she was what, like 22, maybe? Yeah, so, and and my story was just so different because, you know, I was 40 and in love, and it was a, you know, we have a child. You know, it's a very different relationship. Okay, then let me ask one last question. Um, This will happen again, right? Like, it's not like what you did is crazy or shocking when you think about it. People have affairs especially politicians. And at some point down the road, someone else will have an affair. It will become a huge media firestorm and we'll go through this circus all over again. Uh, Before we do that, um, what would your advice be to the people who are in the heart of it? And what would your pleas be, the pleas that you would make to journalists covering it? Uh, Well, you know, don't do it, first of all. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go there! Don't do it or get your book deal first. (laughs) (laughs) that's actually pretty good advice to end on be the Um, first one to get the book deal fair enough and oh and the Um, other thing is make sure you get a lot of money for the interview because you know it's like oh we don't pay for interviews it's like the the thing about the media is is for some reason they're allowed to profit and nobody else is you know it's i i don't agree with that either i think that everyone should should be making a living off of their own story. I Fair mean, if enough. you're going to be profiting for, from you know their story, they should be profiting from their story. There's n- some outlets like, pay, there's some, some there's don't. There's some shame, like there's some like like weird shame about how dare you make money off of of your own life. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. That's a fair point. Um, all right. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I know it was a long time in the making. I, I actually really enjoyed this conversation. I, I wish we had done it sooner um, because, you know, our histories are intertwined in a way, but also because the issues are kind of cool and interesting to talk about. And where do you go from here, Sam? It's a really good question. I don't know. We'll would see, would we'll you see report how, on it? Would you report on another affair? 
Oh, wow. That's an actually fascinating question. Um, I've had the opportunity to pursue stories on other affairs, uh, and I've passed on them. Um, it's the, I think, uh, well, once is definitely enough. Uh, once might've been too many. Um, you know, I, uh, I think there's, I think there is, it depends on the situation. I think in your situation, if I had to do it over again, I don't know if I would have done it. I certainly wouldn't have done it the same way. Um, but I do think there was merit to the story. I don't think there's merit to the way the story was told. I think there's merit to the story in that for all the reasons I laid out, which was John was presenting a life that was not true. And he was um, in that sense misleading voters. That doesn't, I'm not trying to claim moral high ground here. I just think that that's, um, there's news there of value to the public. But I don't think that's necessarily the case with every affair. And I don't necessarily think that every affair is something that the public needs to know about. And I certainly am open to the notion that, um, you know, we live in glass houses. Like people in my yeah, profession I, are no less noble. So it's tough. It's a very tough – it's a tough question. Um, and it, I find it weird uh, – well, I don't find it weird. I just find it interesting that, you know, we still are so fascinated by these stories. Obviously, you know, it's sex sells and, and I don't disagree with that. But, you know, you would think as a society we would sort of get more comfortable with the idea that – this isn't necessarily the biggest public interest story of all time. Um, and I don't know if we're there yet. Yeah, I also think that that there's, you know, in politics especially, you, they really, um, and I think Donald Trump has changed this, and I think that's a great thing about guarding your public persona. You know, everyone wants to be perceived in such a great light, in a perfect light, instead of a human light. You know, yeah. we're all human. And so there's this, you know, protection about they they want every people want to be loved instead of shamed. <laughs> yeah, and I'm trying better. to think of I'm trying to think of a politician who's like been just yeah, you know, basically said, Yeah, I had an affair, it was terrible or it wasn't me or I regret it or it was a human instinct. But it doesn't matter to my campaign because my campaign yeah. is not about my personal life. And I think and I don't that's, think I've ever seen I think that, someone do that. No, it hasn't. But I think that's the the direction we're headed into. You do? Um, because I think we're evolving into that. Well, when that happens, when someone makes that point, I will call you back and we will have another interview. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, Sam. <laughs> That was Riel Hunter. Now, Candidate Confessional is produced and edited by Zach Young, who also wrote our theme music. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and spread the word. Next week, we have Tom Perriello to talk about the 2017 Virginia governor's race and the future for the Democratic Party in the age of Trump. See you then. <laughs>